Last time we were in Jude, we looked at the first part of verse 14, where it spoke about Enoch prophesying. And now we are going to get into the body of what that prophecy was. For quite some time in the book of Jude, we've been talking about spiritual warfare. We've been talking about judgment. We've been talking about the law and those false teachers, those ungodly men who had crept into the church even in Jude's day, and the sure destruction that would come upon them and all the ungodly. These are hard sermons because it is a heavy dose of the law, and today is going to be maybe the uh, final sermon, at least for a while in Jude, where this law comes to bear so heavily, and yet as it's been my desire, and as it should be any desire of a pastor and a preacher, a minister of the new covenant, it's to give the law, but with the gospel, not just the gospel without the law, not just the law without the gospel, but the law and the gospel together, for both are needed even in the household of God. So today we are going to continue to see the law, and by God's grace I will also give those of us here the gospel who need to be refreshed from a long week, and also for those among us who need to believe in the gospel for the first time and be saved. So without further ado, let us pray and ask the Lord to bless this time. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the time that you give us each and every week to sit under your word and to hear you speak to us and to have your spirit teach us. Lord, we ask for that blessing again this day, that promise that you've made to meet us in your word and to feed us and to nourish us and to correct us and to grow us up more and more into the image of Christ as we hear these words. Do it this morning, Lord for your glory and the good of all your people here this morning. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and we all say, Amen. Well, today's sermon is going to be broken up into three parts. Verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. No A's, no B's, no C's. Verse 14 is going to be under the heading of Christ coming in glory. Verse 15, under the heading, Christ coming in judgment. And verse 16, I titled, Christ coming in advance. Christ coming in glory, Christ coming in judgment, Christ coming in advance. Well, as an introduction, what I want to do after reading the text is talk a little bit more about this book of Enoch, where this quote is provided to us from after being brought through the apostolic witness in Jude. So let us read Jude 14 through 16 and begin with an introduction concerning this apocryphal work. Let's read. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So some introductory remarks about the book of Enoch. Now, it's not the first time as we've been in Jude that we've talked about Enoch, that we've talked about this book called the book of Enoch. We talked about it when we were looking at the three illustrations that Jude gave concerning God's previous judgment on the ungodly in redemptive history. One of those was the angels who were disobedient. That's when we looked at the book of Enoch trying to gain a context for who these angels were who were disobedient. And we looked at Genesis chapter 6. We talked about the book of Enoch when we looked at verse 14 last time concerning Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam who prophesied. Because we noticed that in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, there was Enoch mentioned in the genealogy, but there was no prophecy that was given by Enoch in the book of Genesis, nor anywhere else in the scripture. And so we are asking the question today, where did Jude get this prophecy? Where did Jude become acquainted with this word of Enoch, this prophecy? So I want to begin with a brief word that must be said about the source of this prophecy. Again, Outside of the book of Jude, this prophecy by Enoch is not recorded. So where did it come from? Was this a prophecy that was given by Enoch or attributed to Enoch by Jude that Jude received by direct revelation? That could be possible. There are places in Scripture where there are things that are further developed, certainly in the New Testament, that are blossoming from things we learn in the Old Testament. For instance, we learned that Adam is a type of Christ. We sung that this morning in Behold the Wondrous Mystery. The true and better Adam is Jesus Christ. Well, where do we learn that Adam was a type of Christ? It's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. We learn from the Holy Spirit as he unpacks and comments on what he had written in the old. Now, Adam did not become a type of Christ when it was written down in the New Covenant, in the New Testament witness. No, Adam was always a type of Christ. But I hope you see that we have further revelation explaining and unpacking for us what was given in previous revelation. We've said many times, the only infallible interpreter of Scripture is not a pope, is not a pastor, is not a bishop, but the only infallible interpreter of Scripture is the Holy Spirit himself when he is interpreting for us revelation that he had previously inspired. And so is it possible that Jude received direct revelation for this prophecy of Enoch? Well, that is possible. Is it possible that this prophecy was preserved in Jewish tradition 
that Jude, remember, who is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a Jew brought up in the Jewish culture, had this tradition passed down to him orally within the covenant community of Israel? That is possible. There are many things that are spoken of in the Old Testament that are not preserved for us today. There are books of Solomon that are spoken of that are not in our possession today. There are chronicles of the kings of Israel spoken of in the Old Covenant which are not preserved for us today. These are often known as apocryphal works, which means hidden. These are hidden works, and the Holy Spirit did not seem it fit not only to inspire them, but to preserve them. Could it be that this book was preserved in a written tradition of the Jews? That book of Solomon was written. That book of the Chronicles of the Kings was written. It wasn't just orally passed down. Is it possible that Jude got this information of Enoch's prophecy from a written tradition? Well, interestingly enough, if you read older writers on this, if you read some of the Reformed giants that we're all aware of, and one that I profited much from in preparing for this sermon was William Perkins, known as the father of Puritanism. We've quoted him before in the book of Jude. He said that there must be something in Jewish tradition. There must be a work that has now been lost where this prophecy came from. He said, we're certain of it. In William Perkins' time, there was no book of Enoch that was available, at least that he saw preserved in Jewish tradition. But William Perkins was not alive when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Because it might surprise you or interest you that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1949, in this cache of documents, among it was the book of Enoch. And so it seems that there was an oral and a written tradition concerning this book, concerning this prophecy of Enoch. Is it interesting that when we actually read the book of Enoch, this particular prophecy is quoted? So we learn from the historical record that Jude is actually pointing to a historical, oral, and written tradition concerning Enoch. Many in the early church spoke of the book of Enoch. Many in the early church, it might surprise you, congregations thought that it should be Scripture and argued that it should be Scripture. And in that time when the canon was open, when the 66 books or the 27 of our New Testament were not confirmed, the book of Enoch was a contender for being a canonical book. And there were certain congregations who said, oh, yes, the Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over this book. We hear the voice of the shepherd in this book. This is part of Scripture. We'll come back to that. I want to remind us of Enoch as we consider the canonicity of this book. If it should be in our canon. Enoch, son of Jared, father of Methuselah, great-grandfather of Noah. That is the Enoch we're speaking of. And this book 
is estimated to date from somewhere around 300 to 200 B.C. So this is a work that was written before the New Testament. This is a book that was written before the Incarnation. This is a book that was written and in circulation and well-known in the Jewish community. And you know else who would have known about this book? Our Lord. Our Lord would have been familiar with this book. Speaking of Jesus, the incarnate word made flesh. Today, the Ethiopian church holds it to be canonical. It was revered, as I said, in the early church by someone as big as Tertullian. Tertullian held it in high regard. But listen to what Tertullian said in his day when the canon was closed. He held that this work ultimately is not canonical, is not scripture. Why? He thought it should be. But he recognized that his personal testimony was not equal to the testimony of the whole church. And the whole church did not regard this book as canonical. And Tertullian said, the Holy Spirit has spoken. This book is useful. This book is helpful. The Jews held it in high regard. But the Holy Spirit did not see fit to have the church as a whole affirm it. And therefore, it falls outside of the canon. What's more is the Jews themselves did not recognize this book as canonical. There were books that were laid up in the temple that were recognized as being scripture. And the Jews themselves recognized it as being a helpful work written in that intertestamental period, that time between Malachi and Matthew. But they themselves did not view it as canonical. It was rejected by the Jews as scripture. What's more, if we look closer at this quote from Jude, you notice what is missing? The very often quotation, it is written. That's a hallmark of someone quoting scripture in the New Testament. Not always. We have many allusions. We have many quotations even where it does not say it is written. But it is worth noting that Jude does not begin with it is written. Nonetheless, Matthew, Luke, Paul, and John all allude to the book of Enoch. And so again, this book was well known and highly revered. So how should we look at the book of Enoch today? Well, we first we notice this. Is this quote from Enoch canonical? Kind of a trick question. It is canonical. Why? Because it's in the book of Jude. And Jude is canonical. So yes, this quote is canonical at the end of the day. But does that follow that the whole book of Enoch is canonical? No. You might say that's inconsistent. How can this quote be canonical, but the whole book of Enoch not be canonical? Again, many people wrestle with questions like this. Here's what I want us to understand as this introduction comes to a close. That this quote is authoritative in its context. It's authoritative in its context. It's canonical in its context. It's what we would maybe call inspired, borrowed words. 
These are inspired, borrowed words. Where did Jude borrow this quote from? From Enoch. Why are they borrowed? Because the whole book of Enoch is not inspired. We see this happen in Scripture. You're well aware of Acts chapter 17, where Paul actually quotes ancient Greek poets and philosophers, and he does it positively, as some of your own poets have said. We are all his children. Does it interest you to know that who Paul is quoting are Greek poets and philosophers writing about Zeus? Does that make what the poets and the Greek philosophers wrote canonical? No. But does it make Paul's quotation of them as recorded and preserved for us in the book of Acts canonical? Yes. Borrowed, inspired words. I should say inspired, borrowed words. They were not inspired when the Greek poet and philosopher wrote it. They were inspired when the Holy Spirit wrote it through the pen of Paul. How about 2 Timothy 3.8 when he speaks of this long-standing Jewish tradition about Janus and Jambres in the court of Pharaoh? Who were the magicians who turned their staves into snakes? Their names were Janus and Jambres, Paul tells Timothy. Where did he get that? Not from Exodus, not from Scripture, but from Jewish tradition. Is that inspired? Yes, because it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. So how are we to look, as an introduction closes, at this book of Enoch, who Jude is quoting? We're to look at it as inspired, borrowed words inspired borrowed words well now that we have that understanding let us look at this quote from the book of enoch that jude is citing christ coming in glory verse 14 read with me this is what enoch says behold the lord came with many thousands of his holy ones Let's start at the first word. Behold. How oftentimes has our Lord uttered that phrase when he is teaching in the Gospels? Behold, or something more akin to, truly, truly, I say to you. Or maybe in the older translations, verily, verily. What does it mean when you say truly, truly, or verily, verily, or behold, It's this word that means see, look, lo, if you want to use an older older language. Lo, that should come back in style. This This is what Jude is calling attention to in this quote of Enoch. It's the first thing Enoch says. Behold, when you hear that word, listen, listen. It's calling attention to what follows from it. You don't just say, behold, or lo, or look, and then not say anything. The whole point is, this is an attention grabber. Jude wants your attention. The Holy Spirit wants your attention. Enoch wanted your attention with what he is going to say next. Behold. 
the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. This idea of behold again fell off the lips of our Savior. It was prophesied in the Old Testament of his coming, remember? When Matthew cited that passage from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So oftentimes what follows from this word behold is something of such weighty importance. Would you expect anything less concerning the testimony of the coming of our Savior in the flesh? Or after our Savior assumed humanity, when he is teaching, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Oh, Solomon! What grandeur! Can't think of anything greater than Solomon. And then Jesus says, And behold! Someone greater than Solomon is here. This is the one. This is the one who Enoch, who Jude, who the Holy Spirit is setting up an entrance for. Behold the Lord. The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Well, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord who came with many thousands of his holy ones. The Old Testament revealed this coming of the Lord, no doubt. But the New Testament declares it more clearly. That which was concealed in the Old is revealed further and more fully in the New, like a blossoming flower that sprouts in the Old Testament is in full bloom as we get to the New. Moses himself used such language when declaring the Lord coming to his people when he gave the law. Interesting. When he gave the law. The coming of the Lord is a motif throughout the whole Old Testament. And it finds its fulfillment in the coming of the Lord in the New Testament. Listen to the words of Moses as he writes about the coming of the Lord at the giving of the law. Turn, if you're able, to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33. And I want you to pay attention to Moses' language and consider Jude's language as he quotes Enoch. The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. This is Moses. Now this is the blessing. I'm sorry, starting in verse 1 of chapter 33 of Deuteronomy. Now this is the blessing with which Moses the man of God blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Listen to the next line. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning 
for them. Interesting passage. Speaking of the coming of the Lord at the giving of the law. Did you ever make the connection that the coming of the Lord all throughout the Old Testament is foreshadowing a greater coming of the Lord? Is it strange to you that when we talk about the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones, that there would be a connection back to Sinai of the Lord coming? There's direct language borrowing here that he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. The Lord who was declared to come in Old Testament prophecy is the risen Christ of New Testament revelation. While you're in the Old Testament, turn to that last book, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And I want you to listen to the first word in verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I'm making the point that the Lord who was declared to come in Old Testament prophecy is the Christ of New Testament revelation. Malachi 3.1. Malachi says this, Behold! There it is again. I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, we sing about him when we sing, A mighty fortress is our God. Who is this Lord who was promised to come to his temple? Who is this Lord who would come after the messenger made the way clear? Who is this Lord of hosts? Matthew 11.10 interprets it for us. The Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written. Speaking of John the Baptist, the one who was making the way clear before me. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. The Lord who was prophesied to come in Malachi 3.1 is Christ after the incarnation, after he assumed human flesh. And now he is the risen Lord who is prophesied to come again in judgment. The Lord came in the incarnation. This is the context of Malachi's prophecy. But he's going to come again. The Lord was prophesied to come in the incarnation. And now he is the risen Lord who was prophesied to come again in judgment. Speaking after the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul spoke these words again in Acts chapter 17 where he quoted those philosophers, where he quoted those Greek poets. 
starting in verse 30 of chapter 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God had decreed before the foundation of the world that the Lord would come in the flesh, that the Lord would suddenly come to his temple, that the Lord of hosts would be beheld by his people. But the Lord also decreed before the foundation of the world that the Lord would come again in judgment. That is the certainty upon which we know that these words spoken by the book of Enoch, recorded for us by Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are sure. Because the second coming of Christ concerns it being decreed by the Father. He has fixed a day, Paul says. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is none other than the day of the Lord. Also pictured throughout the Old Testament. Also foreshadowed, even on the cross, when the sun turns to sackcloth and the moon turns to blood and the dead rise from their graves at the resurrection. All a foreshadow of what will happen on that great day. And we asked the question last time, is there prophecy in the church today? And after much qualification, by arguing that there were no prophets in the church today, as in the office of a prophet, we did say there is prophecy in the church today. And one place I I pointed you to was the book of Revelation. If you're able, turn there to the book of Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to read about this day of the Lord and how it connects with what we're reading about in this quote from Jude. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Revelation chapter 1. I want to start reading right from verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits. Stop. Remember we talked about Enoch being the seventh from Adam and how that number seven was symbolic and important. Here it is in Revelation speaking of the Holy Spirit in a symbolic way. Denoting perfection these seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead at the resurrection, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Who's the us? I pray that each one of you in your heart says, that's me. And he made us to be a kingdom of priests who is God and Father. We had talked previously about the priesthood of every believer. 
offering spiritual sacrifices, each and every one of us who believe. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Now that we're washed by that doxology, what's the next word? Behold. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. How's that possible? How's that possible? Children, think about this. How is it possible for every eye to see him, even those who pierced him? Where was Christ pierced? On the cross. How is it possible for someone who drove those nails into the hands of our Savior to see him at his second coming? Because they will be there. They will be there. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And I want to read this last line. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Why do I want to read that last line? Not only because it is filled with doxological praise and wonder and adoration and make, should make all of us bow our knees and just worship from here until eternity, but because there are false teachers in the church today, which is the context of what Jude's warning is, remember, who will say, the Father is the one true God. And Jesus Christ is not the one true God. Oh, he may be a God, or he may be God rightly qualified, but he is not the one true God. He is lesser than the Father. He is not consubstantial with the Father, having the same substance and essence. You know, there is nowhere in Scripture where Jesus is called the Almighty. That's reserved for the Father. Brothers and sisters, if you ever come across these arguments, I want you to underline this line at the end of this doxology. Because this, I believe, is spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Yes, Jesus is the Almighty. He is one with the Father. But I want to call some attention to what we have read. Verse 7. Behold, that same attention grabber that Enoch uses in his prophecy. Notice, he's coming with the clouds. This glory cloud is throughout the Old Testament and speaks of the presence of the Lord. Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? They followed the fire by night and what by day? The cloud. A cloud by day. What was Jesus received on when he was ascending into heaven? A cloud. He was received on the clouds of glory. What did Daniel prophesy? And what did Jesus say to the high priest when they said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Truly, he says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Yes. Again, same question. How is it possible for, those, for that high priest and those who struck our Lord on the head and mocked him. How is it possible for them to see the Lord at his coming? How could our Lord say to the high priest in the eye, yes, I am that son of man 
whom Daniel prophesied about. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It's because as John writes in Revelation, every eye will see him. Oh, you might say, I, I hope that I'm here on the earth when Jesus comes back because I want to see it. And oh, how I hope that I'm going to be somewhere on earth that I'll have a good sight. It's kind of like you're wanting to see Halley's Comet come across the sky. And there's only certain places in the United States where you can be during a total lunar eclipse or solar eclipse. And oh, how I want to be on that part of the earth. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not fear. Death will not separate you from seeing the coming of our Lord. Geography will not separate you from seeing the coming of our Lord. As John says by the Holy Spirit, every eye. We'll see him. Every eye. And this is setting up, I believe, Jude's again warning to these false teachers who had crept into the church unaware. When he says, Behold, Enoch said, The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Even these false teachers then will see the Lord. But there's something interesting. You might notice in our translation it says he came with many thousands of his holy ones. But if you're reading the NIV it says the Lord is coming with many thousands of his holy ones. Or in the ESV the Lord comes with many thousands of his holy ones. So what is it? Is it past tense? Is it present tense? Is it future tense? It's hard to determine because the verb here is an active verb. But the point is this, brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming in judgment on that final day. The Lord came in judgment in the past when the temple of Jerusalem was leveled in 70 A.D., And brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming in judgment today. Romans chapter 1, when it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, is poured out on all ungodliness, brothers and sisters, that is present tense. God is judging today. In the book of Revelation at the beginning, Jesus gives a warning to repent lest he take away the candlestick. Unless he take away the light that is given to that particular congregation. Yes, Christ is making all of his enemies his footstool. And when is he doing that? Right now. So when is he coming? Did the Lord come? Is he coming in the future? Is he coming now? In one way, we can answer with one response. Yes. Yes. But that does not diminish that there is a day that is fixed. A literal 24-hour day that is fixed when the Lord is coming. Psalm 68 17 says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, listen, 
as at Sinai in holiness. You see, even the psalmist is recognizing that there is something about the Lord coming at Sinai that is pointing to the Lord coming in a broader sense. Listen to what our Lord said in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Yes, what is contained in this Enochian prophecy is not novel. It's biblical. Now when the Lord does come, Brothers and sisters, at your last breath, when the Lord comes on that last day in judgment, this is what the church will hear and experience and participate in. Written so long ago in Deuteronomy 32:29, Blessed are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. When he comes, how will he find you? Will you be gathered like wheat and tread upon the high places with him in glory? Or will you be gathered and bundled with the weeds to be consumed by his wrath? One test would be to compare yourself with those natural Israelites. Those natural Israelites who gathered with the spiritual Israelites in the wilderness. They rejected Moses, who was a type of Christ, a picture of the one who was promised to come. And what they did then, many who gather with the saints today do as well. Listen to Stephen's explanation in the book of Acts, right before he was stoned, right before he heard those words, when he was, after he saw the Lord in glory. Blessed are you. Acts 17, verse 7, starting in verse 35, Stephen says this about that rebellious generation. This Moses whom they disavowed, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Many in in congregations today grumble and say very similar things about those in authority. Who made you a ruler and a judge? But Stephen says, the Moses whom they disavowed is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Here again we see a type of Christ, Moses, who's sent to be a ruler and a deliverer as a picture of Christ with the help of the angel Who's the angel? We talked about the angel of the Lord as we talked about Michael disputing with the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to him in the thorn bush, the burning bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt 
and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Oh, the long-suffering of the Lord. 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Who is that? It's the angel, Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai when the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Oh, what could you do but bow the knee and worship in obedience and praise and honor? But Stephen says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Oh, how I think this connects with what Jude says next. Jude says that Enoch says, Behold, the Lord comes with many thousands of his holy ones. Verse 15, To execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Oh, how he's rattling off ungodly, 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 ungodly. The first time we saw ungodly in Jude was when he talked about these men who have crept in. He says, I felt necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, here it is, ungodly persons. So as Jude then describes and gives us illustrations of these hidden reefs in our love feasts, these clouds without water, these wandering stars who you ought not follow, when he starts saying God is coming to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude wants you to recognize two things. Number one, these ungodly men will be judged. Ungodly men today will be judged. And I don't just say men, and Jude and Enoch and the Holy Spirit are not just saying men as in some of them, but repeatedly, all, all. Just as every eye will see him when he returns, the same all will be judged. You might say, well, that includes me. Yes, not in judgment, in a declaration of pardon, a declaration of mercy. For as the Apostle Paul says to the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Will anybody escape that judgment? No. What, what about those whose bodies no longer exist? They've been turned to dust. No matter. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. There will be a general judgment. There will be a general resurrection. Our confession speaks of such a general judgment. 
There is no thousand years between the judgment of the godly and the ungodly, the resurrection of the ungodly and the godly, the rapture and the judgment. No. There is one eschatological judgment coming when the Lord will separate the sheep from the goats. This is a universal judgment. This is a general judgment. But it's also an individual judgment. You might say, I have time. I have time for that universal judgment. Who knows how long the Lord will tarry? Well, I go back to the first question we asked. When is the Lord coming? When is He coming? In the past? In the present? In the future? The answer? Yes. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in one way or another sooner than you think. It may be when we draw our last breath and we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord and he says those words, oh, how I pray, brothers and sisters. I know for my brothers and sisters you will hear these words. How I pray for all those who gather with us that you will hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. But the most fearful words, I believe, in all of Scripture, next to the simple phrase that God is good, as Brother Paul Washer reminds us, if God is good, what does he do with people like us? It is a terrifying thing that God is good, because we are not. But the most terrifying words anyone will ever hear, past, present, and future, is this. Depart from me. I never knew you. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? Oh, I'd love to all repeat in unison. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God has raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. But what until then? Judge yourself. Judge yourself so that you will not be judged by him. How can, I, how can I prevent the judgment of Christ? How can I mitigate that judgment for when I stand before him? What can I do today to prepare for that judgment? And the answer that the apostle gives is judge yourself. Judge yourself. Paul says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Take a spiritual accounting. Do you trust in Christ alone for salvation? Do you believe you even need salvation? Should start there. Are you a sinner? Do you even believe in sin? No matter if the answer is no, you will be judged. God will execute judgment upon all. So judge yourself, I beg you, those who are not in Christ, so that you will not be judged when he returns.
or at your last breath. But one thing is for sure, the judgment of these teachers who had crept into the church in Jude's day is sure. And all of them have heard the verdict already. Think about that. The one who Jude is writing about, the one he's warning about, every single false teacher who had crept into the church back then has heard the judgment. And now they're awaiting that final judgment. Fearful. That should make all of us tremble. Because all of us are mortal. And yet, if we judge rightly, we have no reason to tremble. Because we are in Christ, who took the penalty for sin upon himself, so that we here who believe will go free. That was Christ coming in judgment. And last, I want to close with Christ coming in advance. We've already talked about that. When Jude says, These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Oh, how their schemes precede them. You can judge a tree by its fruit. These are the grumblers, the fault finders, following after their own lusts, speaking arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude has already set the stage where when you hear this description of these men, you should say, of course. These are the grumblers, of course. They hate authority. They become a law unto themselves. They hate apostolic authority. They hate anyone, the law, who tells them what they can or cannot do, so they make a new law. They're following after their own lusts. We talked about that sexual perversion that they were indulging in. They speak arrogantly. Of course, they're claiming to have visions and to have special revelation that they're giving to the church. They speak arrogantly. They flatter people. They want to draw those away in the congregation after themselves. They're feeding on the sheep when they should be protecting the sheep. 2 Peter, the parallel book to this that we've been looking back and forth with, says this about this day when this final eschatological day of the Lord, this coming of our Lord, finally comes. 2 Peter chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. And then here's the application, knowing that this is the case. Since all of these things are be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. But according to his promise, we, who's the we? I pray it's everybody in here. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
Why is the Lord being patient with any of us? One, in one way, I praise the Lord for his patience. You know why? Because I have children who I want to see saved. I have loved ones who I want to see saved. I have friends who I want to see saved. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, believe in him. But as we look around us at this world collapsing and getting more evil day by day by day, what should you be looking to? You should be looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not the reformation of our society to some golden age. I'm not saying what so many other preachers in the past have said. Why bother shining brass on a sinking ship? No, we're here to be salt and light. And for the, for the hope that there will be a context of salvation allowed for our children and our family members and our friends. We want this world to be more peaceful. But that's not where our hope is. Our hope is not in a, a world that is reformed, a Puritan age where the world just cleans up its act. No, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if that be the case, knowing that that time will not come until everything around us is dissolved by fire, then what, what kind of people ought we to be now? If you come to Mount Zion where the law was given and you see the coming of the Lord there now in judgment, much to be feared. But we do not come this morning, those of us who believe, to Mount Zion. I'm sorry, to Mount Sinai. <laughs> we do come to Mount Zion. In closing, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Let this wash over you, brothers and sisters. Let the second part of this quotation wash over you, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And those who have yet to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to confess with your mouth that He is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead. Those of you who have yet to do that, let the first part of this quotation be of instruction to you as a warning to be included in the last part of this quote. starting in verse 18 of chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which, was, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Now, as that is being said by the writer of Hebrews, he's speaking of Mount Sinai. He's speaking of the law being given. But this parallels the coming of Christ. In glory, when everyone cries who does not believe in him for the rocks to fall on them, 
with the trumpet being sounded, with the voice of the archangel being spoken, when he comes with the myriads and myriads of his holy ones, but back to Sinai, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. You might say to yourself, I'm not full of fear and trembling at the idea of the law. Well, you've heard of Moses. He trembled. He was full of fear. But you, who's the you? I keep saying it over and over again because I want you to be rehearsing in your mind, that's me. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, here it is, to myriads of angels. The same language in the quote from Enoch. To the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Amen. When will you come to that Mount Zion? Some of you might be saying, when he comes? When is that? In the past? In the present, in the future, the answer, yes. Yes. Brothers and sisters, we have come to Mount Zion here this morning. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Oh, when will I be with them? When will I go? When will I worship with them? In the past? In the present? In the future? The answer? Yes. Let's go in prayer with hearts rejoicing in true faith that we are worshiping at Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, with all the angels and all those who've departed the church at rest right now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for correcting our thinking. Lord, we are temporal creatures, and we often think in temporal terms, and we often want to wrap our minds around things in the past or the present or the future And so often, Lord, we need to be reminded by your word that these blessings that await us in their fullness are a present reality now. And even the judgments that you have promised are a present reality now. Oh, Lord, thank you for for your law for it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And thank you for the gospel. 
which is the healing balm that we apply to our wounds when we recognize that we do not measure up to that law. Oh, Lord, what a joy we have now and what unspeakable joy awaits us. praise you. May we rest in you this day and forevermore. In Christ's name.